Good morning. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer while the kids walk out here. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. We thank you for for giving us the church and this local assembly, uh, designing the church the, the way that you did. And we ask that as we continue our series today that we would properly divide the word and understand what it is uh, you would have for us to understand about uh, your body here on this earth now, the church, uh, that we would be affected and changed by what we see in the word and it would impact our lives and not just be something we keep in our head, but something we live by. Uh, so help us today to to do that, to rightly divide anything that uh, might be said of my own thoughts that we would uh, dismiss or forget. Now we would only look at what your spirit would guide us to see today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to be in a great variety of different portions of the Bible today. So I will give you the references and if you're quick, you can flip along with me. Um, But otherwise I have them all, read them all uh, to us. We will be starting in Matthew 16, if you'd like to join me there. What we're going to look at today is the authority of the church, the authority of the church. What authority does the church have? And when I think of authority, I think of uh, three things initially. Authority must come from someone or something. It must be given to someone or something, and it must have a purpose, We're going to spend the majority of our time looking at that purpose, but I want to briefly begin by looking at where this authority originates from. In some of the past Sundays, we've had this passage touched on and spoken on before, so I don't want to spend too much time here, but I think it's worth reading in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 16. Jesus has asked his disciples, who do people say that I am and who do you think that I am? Simon Peter answers him and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gate of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound, will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We've talked about this a little bit. Uh, I believe Brother Jamel spoke on this briefly. Um, And it's worth reiterating and noting the difference in the words here between Peter and rock. So at an initial reading of this passage, you might think that, because we we could hear that the word Peter means rock. And so when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And you may at first think, okay, Peter is going to be the foundation of the church. But The Greek, I think, makes a very interesting distinction here that helps us understand Peter's role and our own role in this passage here. The Greek word for Peter here is Petros, and the Greek word for rock here is Petra. So Petra can be understood as a large, humongous, foundational rock, a stone. And Petros, very similar, related to the same word, but can be understood as a piece of stone or a piece of rock. And so Peter is not the rock on which Christ is building his church. This confession of who the Christ, the son of the living God is. And so he says, you're a piece of the rock, but upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And we know that in the scripture, all the saints are called living stones. We are pieces. We are rocks upon which Christ is 
uh, building his church on this confession that Christ is the son of the living God. And what he says after that, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, of course, we are not in control of heaven. We do not command heaven what to do. Um, This could be understood almost as if to say, uh, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Meaning if the church is making or using their authority properly, making righteous judgments and doing things righteously the way God would will, then these things will be or will have been ratified and come down from heaven. And so as parts of that rock, a part, part of that foundation and part of that church we have, we share in that authority. God saying here, you are now the representation of heaven on earth, the church. And so that is from whom the authority comes, Christ, God, and it is given to us, the body of Christ. Now, we know throughout the scripture, we're ta- uh, we see the difference in ministries, the difference in gifts, the difference in roles that we see within a local assembly. So that authority is within the local assembly broken up into different portions. And we won't veer off onto a lesson of church structure today, but we can understand that universally there is one church, one body, uh, all given the authority of the kingdom of heaven. And then locally we see these structures and roles and giftings within the local assembly to live out the body of Christ in the way that he would have us Uh, do that. And that's what we are constantly seeking his guidance and his will on, that we would be aware of the gifts that he's given us here in the local assembly, the authority that he's given us to to participate properly within the role that he has for us. So this authority, why have we been given this authority? What things are we to do with this authority? I want to look at three primarily. We're in Matthew now. We can just flip over to Matthew 28. The first thing that we have been given authority to do, and focus on that word authority, is to extend or expand the kingdom of God. Now, we read Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, and we know this passage is the Great Commission. And we often think of it as our responsibility, and it is. It is our responsibility to spread the word of God and to share his message. But more than that, It's not only a responsibility. We have the authority to spread this message of God. This is what it says, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. So right there, Jesus saying, I have the authority, and so I am sending you under that authority, with that authority as representatives. To do what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son And of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we all know, we've probably all felt that conviction from time to time. This responsibility to share God, to spread his kingdom. But we have an authority to do so. Governments try and usurp this authority. They may say, you know, we don't allow the preaching of the word of God here. We don't even allow Christians in the country. But we have such a far superior authority to these earthly commands and these earth, earthly attempts at uh, borders and persecution. We have an authority 
to share the gospel, not only in a responsibility, but in authority. And not only to extend, extend and um, expand the church, but the second thing that the body of Christ has been given authority to do is to judge. Now, judging is something sometimes within the church, but especially outside of the church, we hear people say, you know, don't judge me. The Bible says not to judge. But we should make an important distinction between um, judging in a sense of, of legalism and judging in a sense of godliness. So I think I've, I've, from a few different sources, I've put together two definitions that I think will help us. The, the first for legalism and the second for godliness. So here's the definition for legalism. Legalism would be binding rules or regulations that relate to earning salvation or the way we live that are not found in Scripture but based on Jewish law or the traditions of men. Binding rules and regulations. So there are many things in Scripture that a man may take and say, now this is related to salvation or this is a requirement for your lifestyle, but it is not listed so in Scripture. And when we judge people in that way, we are being judgmental in the wrong sense, in the sense that the world often accuses us of being. But there is a, a judgmental, uh, there's a godly judgment. And here would be our definition for godliness. Rules or regulations not required for salvation, but found in the Bible in their correct context as a means of pleasing God. So this is what we are to judge. The this, this uh, living standards that we do find correctly and accurately in Scripture among the saints. And we'll look at that as we go on. Our job is not to judge and accuse and, and correct uh, those who are outside of the body of Christ, but rather we are to judge those who are inside of the body of Christ. Those who are outside, we communicate what the judge has said to them, and we beckon them to come into the fold where we can then uh, bring them into the body, this mutual accountability that we have to judge one another. And that's another thing we'll be seeing is our responsibility to encourage one another to live righteously. That's what judgment is. Judgment is not bashing or belittling or mocking. Judgment is encouraging one another to honor Christ and to live correctly, as the scripture says. Now, again, we need to make a distinction here between the universal church, the church at large, all Christians universally, and then our local uh, fellowship. Because it is not our role to hunt down sinful Christians around the world and accuse them and, and tell them what they're doing wrong. God has set up small structures of local fellowships. And this is where our role is to, to keep one another accountable. Again, we have the, the church structures we see in the scriptures to help uh, these believers in our, in our local assembly live well. And I want to look at that briefly. The local fellowship. So this authority... Again, we have authority as a universal church that has been given to us, and then it is broken down into a structure within the local fellowship. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give an account. So in the local assembly, if there is someone that we are supposed to submit to, someone who must give an account. They're looking out for us. They're not merely cracking the whip and being judgmental. They are looking out for our very souls. How do we submit? What does submission look like? I want to look at three different levels. I think if we, if we agree quietly in our mind and heart 
okay, I'm going to submit to that person. Without telling them, without telling anyone, that's a very easy commitment to break, is it not? To just think to yourself, okay, I'll I'll listen to them. Because then if you change your mind, you never told anyone, no problem. And maybe you tell that one person, you, you take them aside quietly and say, you know, hold me, hold me to this, you know. This is how I'm going to be trying to live. You can tell me if I'm going wrong. But even then, if you want to break that commitment, you only have to break your commitment that you've made to one person quietly. You could deny it to other people if you wanted to. And so what I think the submission suggested here is an open submission publicly made to a group. And I think that's what we see when we bring people into fellowship, as we're going to be hopefully doing in the next week or two here, uh, saying, I understand this bubble, this part of God's church, this local community, and I want to be part of it. I love this church enough to come into it and to be guided by it. And I think that's what we see in the local assembly, and that's the fellowship that we're talking about. I had a quote here that said, true love is not manifest in affection, only in affection and action, but also allegiance. The Christian community is more than a universal body with loose local associations. It's not as explicit as marriage in the scripture, but I think marriage is a good example where the world would say, why not just live together? What's the point of the the marriage covenant? But we know that that covenant is a, a public commitment to other people to say, hold me accountable. This is the vow I am making. And when we come into that local fellowship, it's not making us any more... Um, Christian. It's not making us any more in love. It's just that public commitment. That's all it is, is a public two-way accountability covenant. So within that local fellowship, the judging that we are doing, there are things we should judge and things we should not judge. We're going to begin by looking at the things that we should judge. First thing is morality. We should be judging morality for who? Well, we should be looking at our own morality for our own sake, for our own faith, and for our witness to the church, right? So what do I, what do I mean when I say for our own sake? Life is better lived in a godly way. That is how we were intended to live. Those who are apart from Christ, trying to make it through this world on their own strength and power, have all the reason in the world to be anxious and stressed because they're trying to do this on their own. They don't have a divine uh, a God that they can speak to and cast their burdens and cares on. Life is better lived in submission to God. In Psalm 1, uh, the first three verses, says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does, he shall prosper. This is not a prosperity gospel. This is not a promise of earthly and material success, but it is a promise that life was meant to be lived in submission to God and his law. And if you do that, regardless of whether you receive any sort of material uh, blessing or wealth, that you will have a peace and a fruitful life, a life that, that meant something. And that's what we want to live. And so we judge our own morality to make sure that we are living within those godly guidelines, those godly guardrails, so that our life might have purpose and have meaning. 
but also for our own faith. Second Corinthians tells us to examine ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith, to test ourselves, and also because of our witness. We are here as the body of Christ, right? That representation of Christ on the earth. How the church is behaving is how people will, will make that association. They will make that association of the church's behavior with Christ. We, we know, we, we can hear in the news sometimes of churches publicly doing awful, awful things and doing it in the name of God. And that is not a good witness. That is unscriptural the way that they have uh, some of these things they've done publicly. We won't go into a few of them, but I'm sure most of you can probably think of a couple churches that have not been a good witness. And what Paul says, if we would uh, judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Now here he's talking about... Uh, before the Lord's Supper, making sure that we've judged ourselves so that we won't be judged uh, by the Lord. And well, when is before the Lord's Supper? It's the other six and a half days of the week, right? So judging ourselves to make sure that we are being a good witness, that we're ready to stand before God. So we judge our own morality, but we are also called within that local assembly to judge the morality of others for the same reasons, for their sake, so that they could live a life worth living, a life that had meaning, so that they are not wasting their life and wasting their time. Also for their faith, to encourage them. If we see a, someone who calls themselves a believer living in a way that doesn't seem like a believer ought to live, we should encourage that person to examine themselves, not quietly watch them you know, burn. We should watch them. We should encourage them. Hey, examine yourself. We should bring to their attention this problem and morality and we'll look at how to do that as we go on but also for their witness again we want to this local assembly is a representation of christ and that's what we are called to do is to hold one another accountable is to help build the body up it's not just looking at yourself and making sure i'm squeaky clean so on the day of judgment as long as i'm good right just worried about my own my own skin no 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 we're going to be accountable for those that were in our, our local fellowship here together, how we encouraged one another to be a good witness. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5. What have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? God judges those who are outside. So very specifically talks about judging within our local assembly. So we judge the morality of ourselves and of others. And we also want to be careful to judge doctrine. This is one that is less controversial because it doesn't offend as many people except false teachers. Um, but in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says to test all things. Matthew 7.15 says beware of false prophets. How do you beware of something? By being aware and testing and observing. And then we just, uh, or the, the Bereans, right? Acts 17, they received the word with all readiness and then they searched the scriptures daily to find out if these things were so. We have to be careful. Thank God we've been given wonderful, godly, biblical teachers here. The people that come up here and teach, I guess I'm talking about other people, not myself. Um, we've been given very solid doctrinal teachers here, but it should still be our responsibility to, with great concern and caution and care, search the scriptures and beware of what people are teaching us to make sure that they line up with the word of God. So we examine... We judge morality, we judge doctrine, and we also judge dis, uh, divisions, right? Disputes. 
1 um, Corinthians 6. This is a larger passage that we'll read. Eight verses here in 1 Corinthians 6. This is something I think the is, is lacking tremendously within the church. Divisions and disputes being handled in a biblical way. Most of them go unresolved, I think. Uh, pushed under the rug, pushed aside, ignored, uh, which results in bitterness and gossips and such things. Um, rather than these things being addressed. And I think 1 Corinthians 6 is one of the most self-explanatory passages of Scripture, these first eight verses in 1 Corinthians 6. So within the local assembly, bickerings, disputes, how are those things to be dealt with? 1 Corinthians 6. It says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So do we threaten to sue each other? Do we, do we go to outside opinions? Do we get people outside of the church? Christ has ordained the church to be the highest court. Right? We hear about, you know, the lo- you know there's courts here. We, the, the, the America even have a supreme court. Right? That sounds, that's got to be the top. It's supreme. No. The church for the believer. The church is the highest court. It is the top. So why would anyone go outside of the church to resolve a matter between two believers? Are the believers qualified to judge? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more than things that pertain to this life? If you then have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against a brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure that you go to law against one another. Why do, you, uh, why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and these things to your own brethren. So mockingly, sarcastically, Paul says, is there not one wise person here? So there's not one person that you can go to to help you sort this out. But instead, you're going to hold on to bitterness. You're going to go to, perhaps in many situations, go to court outside of the church. Or his even his better suggestion there is let it go. Don't worry about it. Let yourself be cheated. It's not that big of a deal. The unity and the fellowship that the church should have is far more important than settling a dispute. And if a dispute needs to be settled, again, is there not anyone within the assembly wise enough to settle that dispute? The things to judge, morality, doctrine, and divisions. But there are things that we ought not to judge. The first one is, they all belong to other people. The first one is motives. And I want to specify that I'm talking about uh, judging motives and uh, rather assuming motives to be negative. Why? One reason is that the Lord specifically in multiple places, lists this as his job. The Lord judges the hearts. The Lord weighs motives. But even as we studied on Wednesday night recently in Philippians 1, Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. In this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. So what is he saying? A a good thing is being done. I don't care why. Right? Now, obviously, if someone is sinning or doing something sinful... We don't need to judge their motives. It's sin, right? But 
if someone is, and I, I've, I've heard this before, not in this church, other churches, other places, where someone will be participating in a ministry and there may be uh, grumblings about why. Why do you think they're doing that? What do you think their reason is? Uh, why do you think they're helping out? Oh, why are, they, why are they wearing that? Why are they doing that? All these different things. And maybe so. There may be a false motive there, a bad motive there. But we ought to be gracious in giving each other the benefit of the doubt as often as we can. Uh, again, especially in these situations where a perfectly good ministry or, or thing is being done. If there is no divisive outcome or, or sin occurring, it is not our jo- job to ruin a good thing because we have suspicions of motives. That is God's job and God will bring it out. Now, on the flip side of that, we ought not to judge people's appearances negatively. Again, if there's a blatant sin, obviously we can judge that. That's what we talked about in judging morality. But there are often people who are uh, new to the faith, maybe, or, or have not been taught something. Uh, maybe, maybe we see someone uh, dressing in a way that we feel is inappropriate, and we, we have in our mind an accusation against them of, uh, disregard and rebellion. But maybe that person simply doesn't know or needs to be taught. So again, we ought to be giving one another the benefit of the doubt. Approaching them, we'll, we'll read that as well. We ought to approach people in gentleness to help correct them if there is something to be corrected and not making negative judgments and accusations about appearances or motives uh, because that is the Lord's job. We also not to judge other people's Liberties. Now, I think Romans 14 gives a very good definition of liberties here. In verse 1, it says doubtful things. It says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Why? Because the Lord has received him. So there are many things in Scripture that are very clearly mandated in a biblical context. Do this. Do not do this. And that's not legalism. That's godliness. We talked about that. But there are things in the Scripture that are not explicit. Doubtful things. The example in First Corinthians, not First Corinthians, and in Romans 14 here, is the person who eats only vegetables. Right? It says, uh, "One believes he may eat everything. One person eats only vegetables. Let not let not him who eats despise the one who does not, and let not him who does not judge the one who eats, because God has received him." These are doubtful things um, that we shouldn't be creating divisions and arguments and judgments over. Rather, we should accept them as God has. And also, actions. I think one of the most abused verses, particularly in the world, uh, when when people are saying, you know, don't judge me, uh, 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 non-believers seem to do that. They memorize a couple Bible verses that they can really use against believers if they're not ready for them. And I think this is one of them in Matthew 7. where it says, how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, but look, there's a plank in your own eye. Have any of you ever been told you have a plank in your eye? I have. And sometimes it's there. But look, there's a plank in your own eye. Hypocrite. That's the key word, hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So a hypocrite, right, is a person who tells someone not to do something while they do it themselves. Now, is that talking about sin in general? Well, it can't be, because we all sin. So if everyone has sin, no one can ever 
tell anyone else that they've sinned. So what I think is going on here is um, the Bible also talks about uh, you know, how can you judge other people when you, the judge, do the very same thing. In judging other people for things that you do, you condemn yourself. And so the speck versus the plank. How can you confront someone about a sin that you're committing? So we can't judge people's actions hypocritically. But we are to judge the morality, right? We talked about that, judging the morality. And if we can't judge someone, that's also something where we should, it circles back to judging ourselves. If we realize, oh, I can't judge that person because I'm, I'm sinful too in that way, right? Now we're back to the judging ourselves, our own morality. So we should be able to then confront our own morality get right before the Lord, and then help that person get right as well. So what comes after then that judgment that the church has the authority to do? Discipline. And this is another very controversial topic within the church. But the church has been given authority to discipline. Now, I'm going to step out of... um, things that are explicitly said in scripture and make a suggestion as to um, what I see described, the types of sins that are confronted in a church discipline setting. Um, This is a man-made list, but the sins that merit church discipline seem to be serious sins, which we may think at first all sin is the same. How can there be a serious sin? I think a good way to understand a serious sin is to think of it as sins that are premeditated or thought about, not necessarily, um, you know, one-offs or uh, impulsive sins. Are they serious? Oh, my goodness, they are serious. But we have a gut reaction, and I think it's from God, a gut reaction to certain sins that we know this was thought out, this was evil, this was wicked. And I think those are the types of sins that Paul is listing in the Scripture when he talks about church discipline. They're serious sins. They're usually outward sins, sins that affect people, sins that affect other believers. And most importantly, they're unrepentant. They're not sins that were committed and apologized for and brought up on their own. They're sins that are either denied or or that person becomes angry when they're confronted about this. Serious, outward, unrepentant sins. But the church has given many steps that it is encouraged to use before discipline is put into place. Again, this discipline is an authority from God. We'll see that in Matthew 18. But prior to committing uh, or to initiating discipline, the word of God encourages many, many steps. In general, we can see in Galatians 6.1, it says, If any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So when the church sees part of its body sinning, the easiest preventative step, rather than rushing to present it to the church, is a gentle spirit to restore that person. There's also, in Second Timothy, maybe the next step up from a gentle uh, spirit, and it's patient teaching. Second Timothy 2 says, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God, perhaps, will grant them repentance, 
so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So maybe one gentle attempt at restoration may not be enough, but we ought to be patient teachers. If we are confronting someone, we ought to be prepared to be patient and humble, hoping that God will grant them repentance, that they can come to their senses. Because if that doesn't happen, we do have instructions, authoritative instructions, on the steps to follow that. In Matthew 18, this is the uh, common, common, we hear it a lot, structure uh, suggested outline for how church discipline ought to go. And there's four main steps to it. In Matthew 18, starting in verse 15, we're to go to that believer and tell him his fault. Now, this is related to personal conflict between two believers here. And it says, go to that person and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, in this instance, we could again hope that this would be in a gentle spirit to restore. And then to pause here and circle back and tie this in again to the authority of the church. Outside of the church, the, the reaction to being told you're doing something wrong or to be told um, not only you could do this better, but that this is wrong, right and wrong. People don't want to be told that something is wrong, or that something is sin. How dare you judge me? How dare you say that I'm not doing something right? You've got a plank in your eye, right? They pull that one out. But again... It's not only kind of us to do that, again, for their sake, their faith, and their witness, but we have an authority. We've been given an authority to confront believers about their wrongs. And so we go to that person in a gentle spirit, hoping to gain them back. But in verse 16, if they will not hear you, take one or two more with you, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So we bring other believers to that confrontation, again, hoping that in a quiet and gentle spirit, patiently in humility, that this person might be called to repentance and come to their senses. But then in verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And in verse 17 and 18, if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now this what we've read so far seems like good advice, good instruction. But if we remember when we opened, we looked at Matthew 16 where this authority, whatever you bind will be bound, whatever you loose will be loosed, this authority was given. And in verse uh, 18 here, Matthew 18 now, two chapters later, after this process is explained, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bound or bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed on heaven. So this structure of confronting and restoration is directly and explicitly tied in to the authority that the church has been given. So if this, these preventative steps, right, the gentle restoration, the humble correction, if the brother is not gained, it says, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Well, what does that mean? I think 1 Corinthians 5 says it a little more clearly. It says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
This is where we get our idea of excommunication. Now, again, we don't command Satan either. But if a righteous judgment is made by the church against a believer who's been living in sin, then that excommunication, that putting outside of the fellowship is something that heaven will ratify if that judgment was made righteously. This is what the scripture says. And that's usually the only part we hear about. Excommunication. We make jokes about it sometimes. We probably shouldn't. But we make jokes about it. Being put outside of the fellowship. But in 1 Corinthians 5, it goes on. It says we're not only to put them outside of the fellowship, but they're to be excluded from fellowship with believers, period. In 1 Corinthians 5, 11, it says not to even eat with such a person. Now, that sounds very harsh. Very, very harsh. Even though we've given them all these steps, uh, a gentle spirit, patient teaching, bringing a few, bringing the church, it still seems harsh, right? To deliver one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And what does that mean? Does that mean we... we have Satan give him disease and pain and sickness. That's not the goal. Again, like we talked about, uh, we want to examine our own morality for our sake, right? Living within the guidelines God has created is much, much better than living in the guidelines of the world. And there are two kingdoms on this world, kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of uh, God and the the domain or the, the ruler of this world, which God has currently given Satan some reign over this world. And if you are outside of the kingdom of heaven, outside of that protection and, and, and guidelines and structure of Christ's body, Christ's church, then you are in the kingdom of Satan. And to deliver one to Satan is to uh, remove that fellowship, that protection, that encouragement that we see within the body of Christ. And what is the goal? What is the goal of all of this authority? We already saw that the, the, the first thing we looked at was the authority to expand and extend the church. But sometimes the church itself, sometimes the members of that body need healing and need restoration. And so all of these steps, even if it gets to that putting out to the destruction of the flesh, is for restoration, to restore for their sake and their faith and their witness. The rest of that verse in 1 Corinthians says, Deliver one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And if that is not our deepest desire from the moment we begin with that gentle approach, then we are in the wrong. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that, on the contrary, you ought to rather forgive and confront him, lest perhaps he be, one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So it seems here, Paul speaks of someone that was put out of fellowship that is now in great, repentant, deep despair. And he says, forgive him, comfort him, reaffirm your love to him. That all along is the point of that penalty, of that confrontation, of the church's authority, is to edify the body. The two main parts, to extend or expand, and to restore and edify the body. That is the church's authority on this earth. For unbelievers, it is to communicate what the judge has already said. 
to explain to them their need to be brought into the body of Christ and those within the body of Christ to edify and strengthen them so that the church will continue to be a good witness to the world. And this is the authority we've been given. And this is why we have been given that authority, that everything might be done in love to edify and build and grow that body. And so that is... It is an accountability call to us, not only to remember... Again, when we looked at Matthew 28, we talked about we think of the Great Commission as a responsibility, but it is also an authority. Now, on the other side, when it comes to confronting other people, which is scarier, we think of it, we have an authority to do that, right? That's sometimes we like to kind of keep that badge on, our little sheriff of, or deputy of Boulevard badge, right? We like to have that authority, but then we forget it's our responsibility, something we have to do, something we're called to do. We often don't want to. We talk about it, maybe to people we trust, which creates further divisions, right? We talk about this person, that person, oh, I wish the elders would do something, right? And maybe it does have to get to that point, but we ought to go gently and attempt to restore the body so that the church would continue to have uh, a good witness in the world. We have the keys, we have the representatives of heaven on earth, and we ought to do all that we can with that authority to keep that representation looking like Christ. And that's what we've been called to do. And that's what we've been given authority to do. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for choosing us, for saving us and redeeming us despite our sinfulness, despite our lack of willingness, despite our sometimes our fear of responsibility or our lack of acting authoritatively we we pick and choose the things we want to do we we don't follow your word as well as we ought to so help us to do that more and more help us to feel the weight of the responsibility and the strength of the authority of the things you have called us to do that we would be burdened daily not only to edify and grow and expand the church but that ourselves and those around us, we would, out of a spirit of gentle love, look to restore and, and in, in godliness confront one another so that the body might grow and thrive. Help us to do that. Help us to have the boldness to do that. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.